are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode 13. Today's episode is titled Recognition and Revenge. And so welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and this is episode number 13 of Odyssey the Podcast. Now, you will recall that at the end of the preceding episode, Penelope had just completed her quite audacious fishing expedition, and the catch which she had managed to reel in was a massive hoard of gifts from those 108 overly eager suitors. But of course, the danger was the bait that Penelope had used to ensure such a valuable catch was her promise that the very next day she was going to actually marry one of those men. And as episode number 12 came to its conclusion, we listeners were left with a bit of a question. Had Penelope genuinely given up on Odysseus ever coming home? and so she intends to actually marry a new man in the morning? Or, on the other hand, has Penelope somehow figured out that the homeless beggar is actually her husband Odysseus? Now, you will recall, when we left the episode, the two, Odysseus and Penelope, had not yet met in person. That meeting, at the beggar's request, had been deferred until evening. And folks, as episode 13 opens, it is now evening. And so we will begin this episode with the story of the first meeting between Odysseus and his wife Penelope in 20 long years. So, evening arrived. The suitors, having delivered their gifts and knowing that tomorrow was their big day in the Great Hall, well, the suitors had headed off to their respective places to sleep for the night. And that left alone inside of the Great Hall of Ithaca's palace, only a homeless beggar, Penelope, and, of course, a host of her personal slave girls and chaperones. So Penelope took a chair by the fireplace. She instructed her slave girls to prepare a chair for the stranger beggar. And then she motioned him over and invited him to sit down opposite her. Penelope began by asking the homeless man the obvious question. Stranger, who are you? Who are your parents? And where, stranger, do you come from? And immediately, folks, that put our boy Odysseus, the master of lies, into a little bit of a bind. Penelope's question, of course, was entirely appropriate. But Odysseus dared not tell her the truth and reveal his identity in this particular setting at this particular time. Folks, you have to remember, Penelope was not alone. She was surrounded by her slave girls. And doubtless some of those slave girls had conflicting loyalties. And if you're wondering, well, here's why. 
108 young, eligible, attractive bachelors had pretty well been living at the palace for the past three years. And so it's not at all surprising, given the way we humans are hardwired, that some relationships, either consensual or forced and coerced, had developed between those eligible wealthy bachelor suitors and the helpless slave girls living in the palace. And so now, if somehow it became public knowledge among any of the slave girls that Odysseus the master was home, well, doubtless some of the slave girls would rush off and warn their particular favorite suitor slash lover. And in no time at all, all 108 suitors would know. And that would destroy for Odysseus any advantage of surprise that he currently held over the suitors. And he and Telemachus most certainly would die. Which brings us, of course, right back to Penelope's question of who are you, stranger? Where do you come from? What is the name of your parents? And it meant that Odysseus, in his very first encounter with his wife, had to lie to her for both of their sakes. Or alternately, he at least had to find a way to speak in sufficient code that Penelope would realize the truth of the stranger, but that none of these slave girls listening into the conversation would suspect a single thing. And so Odysseus answered Penelope as follows. You have a right to question me, but please do not ask me about my family or my native land. I am a man of sorrow, and it would be rude of me to sit in somebody else's house lamenting. Either that or you might think that my tearfulness was caused by me having drunk too much wine. And then, folks, Penelope did something rather unexpected. She unburdened herself absolutely and completely, breaking down and confessing to the beggar that, number one, she was at her wit's end, number two, she had been desperately trying to hold off the affection of the suitors, and that, number three, all of her plans, including her weaving and her unweaving scheme, had ultimately failed. So now Penelope explained to this stranger beggar, she was entirely defeated. And worse still, her father and her very own son were now pressing her hard to remarry and to leave the palace. In Penelope's own words, Stranger, I have no more ideas, and I can fend off a marriage no longer. My parents are pressing me to marry, and... Now my son is resentful because he sees his estate being devoured by these men. And I so miss Odysseus. My heart is melting. Now, folks, if you'll permit me an aside, if it seems passing strange that the Queen of Ithaca is revealing the depths of her desperation to a strange, homeless, bottom-of-the-social-order beggar, and a foreigner at that, well, there's two possibilities. Either Penelope is feeling safe at unburdening herself to this man, on the very basis that he is so absolutely inconsequential inside of Ithacan society that Penelope can safely risk confiding in him, or perhaps 
Penelope is confiding in the strange beggar for some other reason. But whatever the case, Penelope continued, But now, stranger, you must reveal who you are. Very well, Odysseus replied. Since you will not stop asking me, I will tell you the truth. And, of course, ladies and gentlemen, we are veterans enough of Odysseus by now that we know that whenever Odysseus begins a sentence with, Since you ask, I will tell you the truth, we can prepare for our favorite master of lies to launch into one of his fabricated bullshit stories. Which is precisely what Odysseus did. In this particular version of the story, apparently concocted on the spot, Odysseus, the homeless beggar, claimed that he had originally been a member of a royal family and that his original homeland had been the island of Crete. And, of course, Odysseus's story included the obligatory Odysseus sighting. Inside of this particular fabricated tale, the homeless beggar claimed that he had seen Odysseus, as Odysseus was heading off to the Trojan War, some 20 years earlier, and that he and Odysseus at that time had exchanged hospitality and, indeed, had exchanged guest gifts. In Crete, I saw Odysseus, the beggar claimed, and I was a prince at the time, so I gave him appropriate guest gifts. Now, folks, the story of the sighting of Odysseus, of course, precipitated more tears inside of Penelope. And to Odysseus's credit, though he kept his disguise, if you're worried about the hardness of the man's heart, well, Homer tells us the following. Odysseus pitied his grieving wife, but he kept his eyes quite still without a flicker, and he disguised his own tears with great artifice. And then Penelope, demonstrating that she was clever, cunning, polytropous Penelope, illustrated that she was no fool. Of course, folks, we need to understand that this would not have been the first beggar that Penelope had questioned in the preceding 20 years. And, of course, any homeless man showing up inside of the palace and hoping that they might get a meal, a hot bath, and a good bed for the night would have, inside of their account and Penelope's questioning of them, likely inserted, whether true or not, some sort of optimistic Odysseus sighting story. And so Penelope, hearing this particular homeless man's story, recovered herself and demanded truth of the credibility of said story. Now, stranger, I would like to set a test to see if you did host my husband those years ago in your own house, as you have claimed. So, stranger, describe Odysseus's clothing. Now, folks, before we go on, let's just pause to consider Penelope's request. Do you think you yourself, had you hosted some celebrity in your home for an afternoon some 20 years earlier, could now, on demand, 
describe that celebrity's clothing without, of course, referring to the inevitable host of selfies that you would have taken with said celebrity? Well, the homeless beggar posed with the question, not only answered the question with a broad outline, but actually provided intimate and intricate details of what Odysseus apparently had been wearing those 20 years ago. Here's what the beggar said. My lady, that would be hard to say. It has been 20 years. But I will tell you the image in my mind now. Kingly Odysseus wore a purple cloak of double-folded wool held fastened in place by an elaborately carved golden brooch with, with double pins. And then, after describing the mechanical workings of this elaborate brooch in a level of impressive detail and mechanical accuracy, for having seen the brooch just once and some 20 years ago, the homeless beggar continued his description. Come to think of it, I also noticed his tunic. How it shimmered on him, like the skin of a dried onion. So sheer and soft was the fabric, and bright as the sun. I remember that our women were so dazzled by that tunic that they simply could not take their eyes off of it. And folks... With these descriptions, poor Penelope broke down again. I, I gave him those very clothes. I took them out of the storeroom. I clasped that brooch for him. But never again will I see him return to me, and never will I welcome my Odysseus home. But, ladies and gentlemen... When Penelope recovered herself later in the day, did she stop possibly to wonder about the accuracy of the beggar's description and possibly whether there was more to this supposedly homeless man from Crete than initially met the eye? But meanwhile, the conversation between the beggar and Penelope continued, and the homeless beggar provided even more details on Penelope's missing husband. And these details were decidedly not, this time, 20 years out of date. Folks, the beggar went on to ensure Penelope that he had heard from some reliable source, and quite recently, the following that Odysseus was alive, well, and at the moment very near Ithaca, and that Odysseus had only recently visited a famous oracle, and had gone to the oracle apparently to ask whether, when he was due to arrive home in Ithaca, he should do so openly or instead in some sort of a disguise. Now, the beggar explained to Penelope that he did not know whether Odysseus had chosen the openly or disguise route. But the beggar concluded with a powerful reassurance. I swear by Zeus 
and by the hearth of this very home that shelters me now. This very month, Odysseus will come home. Well, Penelope listened, absorbed everything that the beggar had stated, and then cautiously, with great circumspect, replied, Well, I hope you are correct, but I doubt you are correct. And that appeared, folks, to be the end of the evening's meeting between Odysseus and Penelope. But then, in a rather remarkable offer of Xenia to a homeless man, Penelope had quite generously ordered her slave girls to bathe, oil, and clothe the stranger, and prepare for him a fresh, real bed with fresh, real, clean sheets inside of the very palace. Now, immediately, Odysseus, in disguise, modestly refused the full bath courtesy of Penelope's young slave girls, claiming that he was an old, broken-down man and that he would feel much more comfortable simply having his feet washed, and preferably not by one of the young, pretty slaves, but instead by a woman inside of his own demographic age group. And so Penelope had actually one-upped the stranger and volunteered the oldest and most broken down of her serving women for the task of simply washing the beggar's feet. Now, folks, the serving woman who Penelope volunteered was a slave who had been inside of the family named Eurycleia. And she was so ancient, in fact, that she had been the nanny and indeed the wet nurse who had cared for Odysseus when he had been an infant and then had helped to raise him as a very young boy. Now, a little bit of a digression here. It's pretty obvious, folks, that Odysseus's decision to turn down the nice hot bath and oil rubdown courtesy of the young slave girls and instead request a foot wash courtesy of the ancient old slave lady Eurycleia had absolutely nothing at all to do with Odysseus's professed modesty. Odysseus was actually recruiting Eurycleia. He knew that the next day there was a possibility he would need an inside woman who had unfettered access to the ladies' quarters and to Penelope as he mapped out his plan for defeating those 108 suitors. And Eurycleia, of course, was his best bet at fulfilling that role. She was the most faithful and loyal of Odysseus's slaves, and she was the person least likely to be suspected by any of the suitors. So, Odysseus's plan was simple. He was going to receive a foot wash from the ancient old slave Eurycleia and then use that foot wash as a means of secretly revealing his identity to Eurycleia. And how did Odysseus anticipate that happening? Well, apparently, folks, way back when Odysseus had been a little boy, he had been off on a hunting expedition and had come face to face with a rather fearsome and nasty wild boar. Well, Odysseus had managed to kill the wild boar, but not before receiving a nasty wound on his leg. 
a wound which Eurycleia herself had actually stitched up. And that wound had left behind a significant telltale and distinctive scar. So the plan was rather simple. Odysseus was going to wait until mid-foot bath, then subtly raise his tunic enough to reveal the telltale scar, and with a little whisper, a nudge, and a nod to Eurycleia, let her know that her master was home and that she was now an insider who could help out with the plans. But poor old ancient Eurycleia. Folks, the moment that she realized that the homeless beggar was indeed her dear master, her Odysseus, home at last after twenty long years away, well, Eurycleia failed to be anything like subtle. First of all, she dropped the wash basin, and hot water went flying all over the floor of the great hall. And then Eurycleia burst into dramatic and theatrical tears. And finally, she turned, stood up, and was joyously about to blurt out to the entire assembled slaves and Penelope herself that the man whose feet she was washing was indeed her master. Ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus stopped Eurycleia just in time, grabbing her forcibly by the shoulders, pulling her in close and whispering, Nanny, shut up! Are you trying to get me killed? Don't you dare say a word to anybody, or Nanny, I swear, I will kill you right along with those hundred and eight suitors, Nanny. And the firm words seemed to be necessary and fortunately for Odysseus's disguise, the firm words seemed to work. Eurycleia, still shaking, well, she recovered herself and proceeded with the footbath, and nobody inside of the hall was the wiser. But meanwhile, folks, it seems as though Penelope had had some time to thoughtfully consider her earlier conversations with the strange homeless man, and Penelope now invited that man back to the chair beside the hearth. She wanted to further confide in the stranger and then to ask him some particular questions. So first of all, Penelope explained to the homeless man the dilemma that she was in. My mind pulls in two different directions. Should I stay here beside my son and keep things all the same, my property, my slave girls, and my great house? Or, on the other hand, should I leave with whoever among the suitors seems the best choice? And folks, if you'll permit me an aside... Just a reminder here that Penelope's core dilemma has remained unchanged for the past three years. If Odysseus is alive, then her absolute duty is to remain faithfully married to him and to remain the steward of his household and of all of his household goods. But, on the other hand... If Odysseus is dead, then Penelope's 
equally absolute duty is to remarry another man, to move out of the palace, to leave Odysseus's household and his goods to Telemachus, and to exit stage left. And it seems, folks, that Penelope was now soliciting the advice of the strange homeless man to help her determine which of those two options she should choose. But then, as that question hung in the air, Penelope offered something else interesting to the beggar. She confided in the beggar a recurring dream that she had been having. Now, apparently, in this particular dream, an eagle swooped down onto the Ithacan family estate and summarily killed a flock of geese who had been contentedly eating the household's grain. And in the dream, the eagle had then apparently spoken aloud in human voice to Penelope and explained that he, the eagle, was actually Odysseus and that the geese in the dream, well, they represented the 108 suitors, who were all, according to the eagle with human voice in the dream, about to die at the hands of Odysseus. So, stranger, what do you think the dream means? Penelope had inquired of the beggar. I think that the eagle pretty much explained it himself, at least as well as I could, the beggar had replied. And finally, folks, Penelope had then asked the beggar his opinion, an opinion on a contest that she was considering for the next day, a contest that Penelope was going to use to determine which of those 108 suitors she was ultimately going to marry. Now, the plan, as Penelope explained it to the beggar, involved holding an archery contest the next day inside of the Great Hall. And we need a little bit of context here, folks. Here's what we need to know. Apparently, back 20 years ago, before Odysseus had sailed off to the Trojan War, he had mastered a particularly interesting party trick. And that trick had involved first bending and then stringing a nearly impossible to bend and string bow, and after that, of taking that bow, an arrow, and mastering a nearly impossible to master trick shot with that arrow. So the first half of the contest is pretty easy for us to understand. It was simply going to be a feat of strength. Bending the bow wasn't easy. It was going to take a physically powerful man to bend it and to string it. But ladies and gentlemen, the second half of that contest, the trick shot with the arrow, well, the second half of the contest has been confounding Homeric scholars pretty well since the Odyssey was published. Homer informs us that the trick shot with the arrow involved shooting the arrow through 12 axes, all of them lined up in a row. 
Now, apparently, these axes or these axe heads or the handles of these axes had some sort of a hole or a loop or a fastening ring on them or drilled into them. The jury is still out on this. And that a bronze-tipped arrow, if precisely aimed, well, a bronze-tipped arrow could pass through the 12 holes or rings or whatever it was inside of those 12 axe heads. Now, realistically speaking, unless you're a cinematographer trying to shoot this scene in a movie or you're an artist trying to depict this scene on canvas, the exact and precise details of how the arrow was to go through particularly what part of these 12 axe heads or axe handles or loops or whatever is entirely irrelevant. The critical takeaway for we listeners is that the entire contest was going to be exceedingly, exceedingly difficult and, more importantly to the dialogue between Odysseus and Penelope right now, the only man in all of Ithaca who had ever once historically accomplished the task of the arrow and the axe heads had been Odysseus himself. Penelope spoke. So, stranger, I will assign this contest to the suitors. And I think we can hear her words to be as much question as they are declaration. And immediately Odysseus, the beggar, with a smile on his face, had replied. Homer reports the following. Scheming Odysseus replied, Honored wife of Odysseus, do not postpone this contest. These suitors will fumble with the bow, and they will not finish stringing it, or shooting that arrow, before Odysseus, the mastermind, returns. And with that, the conversation between Odysseus and Penelope came to a conclusion. Penelope excused herself and returned to the ladies' quarters of the palace for the night, and Odysseus, being careful to keep up the appearances as a homeless beggar down on his luck, Odysseus left the great hall, headed to the outdoor courtyard, found a comfortable corner, and fell asleep on the cold ground. But the fact was, folks, Odysseus simply could not fall asleep. And if we stop to pause and put ourselves into Odysseus's situation, I think we can clearly see why. He knew that in the morning he faced a rather inescapable and hard reality. He and his yet unproven in battle son, Telemachus, were going to be on one side of the equation, and 108 healthy and fit young men, their enemies were going to be on the other side of that equation. So Odysseus grimly knew that the odds of he and Telemachus getting through the day to come alive were hardly auspicious. So what did he do? Well, he did what we all might do in a situation like that. He gave himself a little pep talk, recalling his past insurmountable challenges and how he had managed to surmount them. 
Remember the terrible things you endured on the day when the Cyclops devoured your friends? But you held firm, and then your cunning got you out of that cave, where you thought for sure that you were going to die. But the pep talk? Well, folks, it did not work. So Odysseus lay on the cold ground, and he twisted, and he turned, and he worried, and he wondered how on earth he was going to survive those 108 suitors in the morning. Now, eventually, ladies and gentlemen, Athena, who must have been keeping an eye on her boy, began to grow a little bit confused. And from Athena's perspective, it was pretty obvious that all of this worry was entirely ridiculous. I mean, why was her favorite human so worried about the events of the day to come? Where was her favorite human's faith? And so, Athena, finally in frustration, manifests herself in her deific form, and she attempted to offer some assurance to Odysseus that come the morning, all would be well. But Odysseus, in desperation, or was it exasperation that the goddess failed to understand what it was like to be a human being and to have doubts, well, Odysseus was hardly consoled by the goddess's assurances. Here's what he said. Goddess, all that you say is true. And yet, I am still filled with anxiety. How am I going to overcome those insolent suitors, alone as I am against the entire gang of them? And, goddess, there is another even more difficult thing. Suppose, suppose that with Zeus's help and with yours... I do kill them. Tell me, I beg you, where could I possibly go to escape their family's vengeance once the killing is over? And folks, at that point, Athena, clearly annoyed, she was the goddess of practical wisdom and not the goddess of empathy towards humans, well, Athena rebuked her favorite boy. Shame on you, Odysseus! Many men have greater trust in their friends than you have in me, friends who are mere mortals. But I, Odysseus, I am a god. So, let me put this to you as plainly as possible. With me at your side, even if you were surrounded by fifty squadrons, of armed men, all eager to kill you, you would defeat them. So, go to sleep, Odysseus. Lying awake all night will do nothing at all but sap your strength for the morning. And with that, Athena vanished. And Odysseus, assured by a personal deific visit, well, Odysseus did manage to drift into a comfortable and nourishing sleep. But folks, let me take you upstairs to the ladies' quarters of the palace, where poor Penelope had been left all alone with her primal fears for the morning, and with absolutely no reassurances from visiting deities whatsoever. Here's what Homer reports. 
Well, sleep took hold and poured out its sweetness around Odysseus, dissolving the cares of his heart. His devoted wife, she sat up in bed and she wept her eyes out. And folks, Penelope laying awake all night and weeping her eyes out is, I think, entirely, entirely understandable. So, let's pause to consider Penelope's situation. The Olympian gods have chosen to bless her hero husband with deific reassurance. But those same Olympian gods have entirely neglected Penelope. So in the morning, as the men of Ithaca make their tactical moves on the Ithacan geopolitical chessboard, well, it will be Penelope's fate to now be nothing but a powerless queen who is entirely, entirely run out of moves of her own. And so Penelope, quite understandably, did not sleep. But eventually, folks, as it always does, morning came. And in the morning, even Odysseus was confronted with another crisis of faith. But he simply sent a quick prayer up towards Olympus. Father Zeus, give me a sign. And that prayer, of course, was immediately answered by a dramatic and reassuring crash of thunder from Mount Olympus itself. In Homer's words, Odysseus rejoiced at Zeus's thunder, because then he knew that he was about to have his revenge. And so Odysseus, a new spring in his step and any lingering doubts about the gods now permanently resolved inside of his mind, well, Odysseus headed towards his great hall. Now on the way to the great hall, Odysseus re-met the swineherd Eumaeus, and you'll remember Eumaeus was the loyal slave, and today the swineherd Eumaeus was outside of the palace, accompanied by a cowherd named Philotius. And Philotius, when he met the beggar, launched into a bit of an epic speech, declaring the following to Odysseus in disguise. Good luck to you, beggar! Although you are in the grip of misfortune now, I do wish you all possible happiness in your future. When I saw you, in fact, tears filled my eyes. You reminded me so vividly of Odysseus. Oh, how I long for the day when my poor, unhappy master will come home from wherever he is and drive all of these suitors headlong from his palace. And if you can believe it, ladies and gentlemen, the speech was actually much longer and even more on the nose than the sections which I just quoted you. But I think you get the general idea. Our storyteller Homer is setting up his cast of characters for the inevitable confrontation about to happen, and he wants we listeners to be in no doubt whatsoever as to which side of the equation the cowherd Philotius is going to come down on. But I digress. Back to the story. 
So the homeless beggar Odysseus entered his great hall. Now folks, just by happy storyteller's coincidence, it turned out that today was a major feast day on the Ithacan calendar. And so the great hall was positively jam-packed. All 108 of the suitors were sitting at the table, feasting, eating, and drinking by 10 in the morning. And of course, all 108 suitors were committing a host of minor outrages and major violations of every one of Zeus's laws of Xenia, including, as the homeless beggar entered the great hall, throwing garbage at that homeless beggar, forcing him to sit down quietly and retreat in the corner of the room. And then, a few moments later, Penelope arrived at the great hall. And folks, she immediately caught the suitor's full attention. Because in her hands, she was holding Odysseus's great bow and a quiver full of arrows. So as the suitors turned and listened in rapt attention, Penelope laid out the rules of the day's contest to follow. And, of course, the nature of the contest's chief prize. Here's what she said. Listen, lords, you keep on coming to this house every day, and your motives are absolutely no secret. You want to marry me. I am the prize. So, today I will set a contest. This great bow belonged to King Odysseus. If any one of you can grasp it in his hands and string it, and then shoot through all twelve axes. I will marry that man, and I will leave this beautiful, rich home. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the suitors, hearing the terms of the contest, well, they recognized how difficult or impossible it was going to be to win. They had their doubts, and even Antinous, by far the most powerful man inside of the hall, well, he spoke as follows. I think this contest will be difficult. None of us can match Odysseus. I remember seeing him do this trick many, many years ago when I was just a boy. And of course, folks, we have to remember that the suitors, of course, are men of Telemachus's generation and not men of Odysseus and their father's generation. Now, as Antinous expressed his doubts about whether the contest had a probable, reasonable hope of a winner, Telemachus, watching the contest, began to grow alarmed. And Telemachus realized that Antinous might be moving very close towards refusing the terms of Penelope's contest. And Telemachus was smart enough to recognize that today, as far as he and his dad were concerned, was now or never for defeating these suitors. And so Telemachus, to his credit and employing rhetorical skills reminiscent of his father, well, Telemachus boldly stepped forward in front of Antinous and attempted to goad the suitors into committing to the contest with the bow. Well, come on now, you suitors. You see the prize, a woman unlike any in Pylos, 
in Argos or in Mycenae, a woman in fact without equal in all of Greece. So, no more excuses. Let us see which of you heroes is able to string the bow. And in fact, folks, Telemachus decided to move things along with the contest by announcing that he would attempt to string the bow first. And if I can do it, he declared, then I will no longer mind if mother goes off with someone else and leaves me here. I will have proved that I am man enough to be king of Ithaca. So Telemachus attempted to string his father's great bow. And of course, though he tried mightily, and no doubt it would have been pretty cool for his self-esteem had he been able to do it, Telemachus was nowhere near strong enough or up to the task. But what his failed attempts with the bow did manage to achieve was his ultimate goal. And that was of committing the other suitors to joining in with the contest and accepting his mother Penelope's terms. And so the suitors began to pass the bow around the great hall. Beginning with the weakest men in the hall and progressing inevitably towards the most powerful of the suitors, Eurymachus and Antinous himself. But folks, the suitors soon collectively realized that bending the bow was going to be pretty much impossible. Ladies and gentlemen, this bow had been sitting in a storage closet for the past 20 years, and the wood had dried out somewhat. The bow was nowhere near as supple as it had been when it had been in daily use. But the suitors, undeterred, had decided all they really needed to do was to improve the flexibility or the bendability of that bow. So they took the bow over to the fire, warmed it over top of the fire, and then obtaining a quantity of fat, they rubbed hot fat into the wood of the bow, hoping that they could make it eventually a little bit more manageable to string. Now, as the suitors were busy massaging the bow, meanwhile Odysseus, still in beggar disguise, quietly slipped out of the great hall. And out inside of the courtyard of the great hall, he approached the swineherd Eumaeus, who was standing beside the cowherd we earlier met named Philotius. And it turns out, folks, that both swineherd and cowherd were in the courtyard because they had completed their deliveries of beef and of pork to the hungry suitors. So now Odysseus, the homeless beggar, turned and spoke to the two slaves. Here's what he said. Cowherd and swineherd, where would each of you stand if, hypothetically, some god should suddenly bring your master back home, and he were to appear here now rather out of the blue. Whose side would you take, cowherd? Whose side would you take, swineherd? Would you fight for the suitors, or would you fight instead for Odysseus? Just how are your hearts inclined? 
And of course, both loyal slaves posed with the hypothetical question immediately and quite eagerly professed their absolute loyalties to their master. And so Odysseus revealed himself to them. Of course, by lifting his tunic and showing off that famous scar. And then Odysseus proposed to cut a deal with his two slaves. He said that in exchange for the two men standing beside himself and Telemachus, against the 108 suitors currently in the great hall, that Odysseus would free both of his slaves from slavery and set them up quite nicely with a wife, a really nice house, and sufficient seed money cash such that the two slaves could now assume their position in Ithaca's social ranks as free men. And furthermore, Odysseus went on to promise, And from this day forward... I will consider you both as my brothers and as my friends. Now, of course, folks, there was the one minor caveat. If the slaves agreed to their master's terms, they were going to have to survive the upcoming fight. And I need to remind you, slaves, unlike free men, were very deliberately kept away from any military training or access to any weapons. And so the swineherd and the cowherd, in agreeing to their master's terms, were essentially accepting the challenge of stepping into the great hall and confronting 108 suitors when neither swineherd nor goatherd had ever held a weapon in their entire lives. Both of them must have pretty badly wanted their freedom. And so Odysseus instructed his team. The task of Philotius was going to be locking and barring the doors of the great hall so the suitors would be effectively trapped inside and incapable of escape when the bloodbath began. And as to Eumaeus, well, Odysseus tasked him on the beggar's signal to get Odysseus's great bow and that quiver of arrows into the beggar's hands. And then, folks, the team, two irrelevant, untrained slaves, and a homeless beggar re-entered the Great Hall. Now, by now, inside of the Great Hall, the bending of the bow had failed miserably, and even it being heated by the fire and oiled down had in no way increased the odds of any man in that room actually completing the task. So when Eurymachus failed as Odysseus entered and threw down the bow in frustration and humiliation, Antinous, the only man left in the hall who had not attempted the task, and seeing the writing on the wall that he was going to fail too? Well, Atinus had attempted to defer the contest, making up some lame-ass excuse that it was a feast day and therefore, according to ritual, the bow should not be bent and the contest should not happen. And folks, it was pretty clear to everybody in the hall that Antinous was deferring his attempt with the bow until morning. He was trying to buy himself time to find some alternate means of winning Penelope 
since clearly he and all other 107 men in the hall weren't going to do it by stringing a bow, let alone shooting an arrow through 12 axe heads. But Odysseus, back in the hall in disguise, knew that it was now or never for his plan. And so, in his best flattering, diplomatic, homeless beggar voice, he stood up, called everybody in the hall to attention, and made a request of the chief suitor Antinous. Uh, I ask you, Antinous, because you spoke such sensible words, to, if you don't mind, allow me to hold the bow uh, just for a moment uh, as you look on and watch. I, I want to see if there is any vigor left in these poor old limbs of mine, which were once so masterful and so strong. But Antinous immediately shot down the beggar's request. And from Antinous's perspective, well, the request was presumptuous beyond the pale. This was a room of noblemen. They were engaged in the serious business of deciding who among them would be marrying Ithaca's queen. And so for a homeless old beggar to presume to speak and presume to request to hold the great Odysseus's bow, well, that was so far beyond the pale that Antinous had to simply assume that the banker had had too much to drink. Sit where you are, beggar. Shut up and drink your wine. And folks, it appeared now as though Odysseus was not even going to get a chance at the contest. But that is when Penelope intervened. Standing at the other end of the great hall, she stood up and she addressed Antinous. Antinous, do you really think that if this stranger's hands are strong enough to string the bow, that he intends to take me home and to make me his wife? Of course not. He does not even dream of such a thing. And then the other chief suitor, Eurymachus, intervened. Uh, my lady Penelope, of course we do not think that this man will make you his wife. That would be preposterous. But, well, we suitors, we'd feel shame. And people would talk if some random beggar were to show up and easily string the bow and shoot through the axes when all of we suitors who are wooing a hero's wife have failed. Penelope, we would lose our dignity. And folks, Penelope's response to that particular statement came with a healthy helping of chilling sarcasm. You suitors have already lost all of your dignity. So why the fuss now? Go on. Give the stranger a bow. Let us watch. And then two things happened. 
First of all, the swineherd Eumaeus, as he had been instructed by Odysseus, well, Eumaeus stood up, he grabbed the bow and the quiverful of arrows from the suitors' hands, and he began to carry the bow and the arrows all across the hall from the hands of the suitors towards the hands of the homeless beggar. And at the very same moment, Telemachus, appraising that just in a few seconds from now, his father would have the great bow and the bloodbath in the great hall would begin, well, Telemachus stood up and summarily ordered his mother and all of her serving women out of the hall, coldly asserting the following, that the bow was men's work, and that women like you, mother, should rightfully be upstairs in the ladies' quarters, weaving and doing women's work, and further asserting that he, Telemachus, and not his mum, was the person now wearing the pants in this royal household. Well, folks, the speech shocked, confused, and doubtless hurt Penelope, what had become of her previously sweet, gentle, and obedient child. But Penelope, not wanting to embarrass Telemachus with a confrontation, obeyed her son's request immediately and she and all of her serving women left the great hall. So, Telemachus's speech had achieved its real goal, which had not been, I think, to insult his mother, but rather to ensure that when the fighting in earnest began in that great hall, Penelope would not find herself caught and defenseless inside of the crossfire, where she would, of course, been the perfect hostage number one in the hands of any one of those 108 suitors fighting Odysseus. But now, thanks to Telemachus's rather brusque words to his mum, now the killing floor was clear of all collateral damage. Now, meanwhile, ladies and gentlemen, the swineherd Eumaeus was continuing his long walk across the great hall, away from the suitors and towards the beggar carrying that bow and that quiver full of arrows. Well, the suitors made an uproar of protest. Hey, dirty pigman, where are you taking the bow? Are you insane? Get your hands off it. And poor Eumaeus, trained to be an obedient and subservient slave all of his life, well, poor Eumaeus naturally faltered. 108 noblemen were giving him commands to do exactly the opposite of what he was trying to do. And again, folks, it was Telemachus, with his newly minted leadership voice, who managed to save the day. No! Papa! Papa, keep on walking! Keep carrying the bow! I suggest that you listen to my command! And with those words, Eumaeus found the courage to continue his odyssey. And soon the weapon was delivered into the hands of the homeless beggar. Now, meanwhile, while all of this was happening and unnoticed during the commotion, the cowherd, as per his part of the plan, 
had quite unobtrusively managed to bolt the exits to the great hall, effectively trapping himself and everybody else inside of that room. 108 suitors, two slaves, Telemachus, and one homeless beggar. And then, folks, the homeless beggar had the bow. He picked it up and began to carefully run his eyes and then his hands over the bow with the practiced eyes of an expert. And the suitors looked on with more than a little bit of confusion. They started to talk to each other. Uh, He stares at it as if he were an expert in bows. He's certainly acting the part. Uh, Just look at how the old scoundrel is examining that weapon. And even one confident suitor, in jest, delivered a line which turned out to be somewhat prophetically ironic. Well, I for one wish him as much success in his future as he has in attempting to string that bow now. And folks, with that I will turn the narration over to Homer to tell us the details of what happened next. And so Odysseus had tricked them all. After examining the mighty bow inch by inch, as easily as an experienced musician stretches a sheep-gut string around a lyre's peg and makes it fast, just so did Odysseus with ease string the great bow. He held it in his right hand and plucked the string, which sang like swallow song, a clear, sweet note. Then he picked up an arrow, set it against the bridge of the bow, and pulled back the arrow's notched end from the bowstring, further and further back. And... Sure in his aim, Odysseus let go. The arrow flew straight through the holes of each of the twelve axes, from first to last, not missing one of them. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, having officially won the contest, Odysseus proceeded to the next task at hand. Homer continues his tale. Then Odysseus leapt up, holding his bow and quiver full of arrows, and he spoke. Playtime is over, gentlemen. Now I will see how well I can do with another target. He strung another arrow, and he aimed it at Antinous. The young man sat there, just about to lift his goblet, swirling the wine around, ready to drink. Odysseus took aim at his throat, and he shot. The arrow flew, the point pierced all through the soft neck. Antinous flopped down. His goblet slipped from his hand, and thick streams of blood gushed from his nostrils. His foot twitched, 
It knocked the table over, food scattered on the ground, bread and roasted meat were soaked in blood. But remarkably, folks, the suitors witnessing this twin feats of marksmanship failed, absolutely failed, to connect the dots. Their minds were simply unwilling to accept that Odysseus had actually returned. So instead, well, the suitors chose to believe that it had been a homeless beggar who had first made the improbable shot with the axe heads, and then that the homeless beggar, quite by accident, had shot a second arrow through the neck of Antinous, the chief suitor. Stranger, they protested, this, this is an outrage. How, how incredibly careless of you. You have just cut down the best young man in all of Ithaca. You know you will have to pay for your life with this stranger. But folks, the stranger's next words forced the suitors' protesting minds back to the hard truth. Odysseus spoke. You dogs, you thought that I would never come home from Troy. So you plundered my house, you raped my slave girls, and you courted in marriage my own wife. You feared neither the punishment of the gods, nor the revenge of any man. But now, a net of destruction has tightened around you all. And with those words, ladies and gentlemen, the suitors finally believed. As Homer puts it, pale fear then seized all of them. So they sat in stunned silence, in fear and worry about what was to happen next. And eventually it was Eurymachus, the number two suitor, who found words on behalf of all of them. And folks, Eurymachus, putting on his very best apologetic and soothing voice, well, Eurymachus actually attempted to bargain. If it is you, Odysseus, then you are right. We have committed terrible crimes in your palace and on your lands. But now, now the one responsible is dead. Antinous, he did not even want to marry your wife. His plan was to kill your son and to seize the throne. But now that he has been killed, and quite rightly, please, my lord, have mercy on your subjects. And folks, after, well, Eurymachus attempted to shift the blame to the one man in the room who could no longer be punished any further for it, Eurymachus got down to the practical matter of bargaining and of compensation. And he proposed, on behalf of all 107 remaining young noblemen in that hall, what can only be understood as an exceedingly generous restitution package. For our part, Odysseus, we will give you full compensation for everything that we have eaten and drunk in your house. We will each bring the price of 20 oxen, and further, we will then pay you 
all of the gold and all of the bronze that you see fit. Now, folks, the package, just for context here, would have more than immediately replaced all of the wealth consumed by those suitors during the three years' tenure that they had inside of Odysseus's palace. But, clearly, in Odysseus's answer, he was in no mood for plea bargaining or for negotiating, and certainly in no mood at all for forgiveness. In fact, Odysseus's only interests were vengeance and a lot of blood. Here's what he said to Eurymachus. Even if you gave me all you possess, and all you will ever possess in the future, not even then would I hold back from killing all of you suitors now. So you have two choices. You can fight, or you can run for your lives. But not a one of you is going to escape death. And, of course, folks, running was not really an option. The doors to the Great Hall had, as we know, been barred. And so the suitors, though some of them attempted to run, realized that they were all trapped inside. So fighting it out to the death now was their only option. And Eurymachus, realizing as much, wasted absolutely no more time on diplomatic niceties. Eurymachus was a trained soldier, and he recognized right away that the greatest threat to the suitors now was Odysseus's quiverful of arrows. So Eurymachus instructed the suitors to summarily turn over the tables and hide behind those tables as if the tables were giant wooden shields. And then... Quite courageously, Eurymachus attempted to launch an attack on Odysseus himself. In Homer's account, Eurymachus drew his sharp bronze sword, and with a dreadful scream, he launched himself at Odysseus. But at the same instant, Odysseus shot, and the arrow pierced the breast and stuck in the liver. Eurymachus's sword fell from his hand. He doubled up, and he fell across the table. He writhed there in agony. His two feet kicked out, and then darkness covered the man's eyes. So, folks, that was now two suitors down. But I would invite you to pause now because I think we can begin as listeners to see the inevitable problem with Odysseus's plan if we play the plan to the end. Folks, right now in the Great Hall, there are now 106 live suitors. All of them, of course, intent on killing Odysseus because they see that now as the only way to save their own lives. And on the other side of the equation in this conflict... Well, there were four men, Odysseus, Telemachus, a swineherd, and a cowherd. So those are the numbers. Now let's turn our attention to the respective weaponry. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just a bit of context here. The suitors normally would have had a massive advantage because the great hall at Ithaca 
was usually hung with all manner of glorious spears, battle axes, swords, shields, and suits of armor. In fact, the decorations festooning the walls of this great hall were a veritable arsenal of weaponry. But, in a moment of foresight the previous evening, Odysseus had ordered Telemachus to remove all of that weaponry and all of that body armor and to lock it up securely in the weapons closet at the front of the great hall. So now, at the moment of conflict, there were no accessible heavy weapons or suits of armor available to the suitors or indeed to Odysseus and his little band of followers. In fact, the only weapons in the Great Hall now were whatever ceremonial swords or daggers the suitors had worn to the feast day banquet, and whatever ceremonial swords or daggers Odysseus, Telemachus, and two manifestly unarmed slaves happened to have in their possession. So, if we go back to the situation and who had the odds now, well, the weapons advantage fell to Odysseus. He still had a quiverful of lethal and long-range arrows, and with those he could for some time hold the overwhelming number of suitors at bay. But folks, Odysseus's quiver contained nowhere near 108 arrows. And so, once the final arrow had been shot, it was going to come down to close combat between four men on the one side and vastly more men on the other side. And then it would be over in a hurry for Odysseus, for Telemachus, and for their two loyal slaves. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that which took me a few moments to explain to us, Telemachus, to his credit, appraised in an instant. And recognizing the inevitable crisis about to befall Odysseus, Telemachus turned and screamed out a suggestion to his dad. Father, I'm going to fetch you a shield, a helmet, and spears. I will arm myself too, and I will return with weapons, even for the swineherd and for the goatherd. And Odysseus, holding his arrows and keeping the suitors at bay with volleys of them, screamed back. Good lad, run fast, while I still have some arrows left to shoot. I'm alone up here fighting, go! And so Telemachus sprinted for the weapons closet. He unlocked its huge fortified door with a key. He grabbed what he could manage to carry, and he rushed back to his father's side with spears, with helmets, and with shields for the four men. And then the four men, armed and kitted out, had somewhat better odds in this fight against the overwhelming number of suitors. That is, folks, until a moment later. Here's what happened then. Folks, it turned out that Telemachus, in his haste to get the weapons and the armor back to his father, had neglected in his haste to relock the great door on the weapons closet. And the disloyal slave, Melanthius, who was in the great hall and conspiring right along with the suitors, had seen Telemachus make his mistake. So, 
Melanthius had made a personal trip of his own to the weapons closet and delivered to the suitors the following. Homer tells us, Twelve shields, twelve spears, and twelve bronze helmets. And so, when Odysseus looked across the hall a moment later, his heart sank, because now twelve of the adversaries on the other side of the hall were heavily armed, heavily weaponed, and heavily shielded. And that, of course, tipped the inevitable outcome of this battle way back in favor of the suitors. In Homer's words, When Odysseus saw them putting on that armor and holding the long spears, his limbs went weak and his heart sickened, because he realized how great the danger was. Now, meanwhile, the disloyal goatherd Melanthius, being praised and commended for his resourcefulness by the suitors, well, Melanthius attempted a second weapons run, heading back to the weapons closet at the end of the hall and attempting to grab more armor to kit out even more of the suitors. But this time, folks, Melanthius was caught in his tracks. Because Telemachus having realized what had happened and having confessed that he himself had accidentally left the door to the weapons closet unlocked, well, Telemachus had sent the two loyal slaves, Eumaeus and Philotius, to the weapons closet to stand there in wait for the return of Melanthius. And when Melanthius reached into the closet and then turned with his arms full of spears, well, the swineherd and the cowherd jumped Melanthius, tied him up, and locked him firmly inside of the weapons closet. We will be back to deal with you later, Melanthius, they gleefully announced before returning to the fighting. Now, folks, inside of the Great Hall, you might be justified in wondering at this point in our story where was that much-promised and ballyhooed deific help that Athena had assured her boy Odysseus that he would be receiving? And I will confess that if I were Odysseus at this point, I'd be beginning to worry that some little domestic spat up on Mount Olympus had distracted, delayed, or altogether changed the plans of our somewhat unreliable, or at best fickle, favorite deity. But Athena, folks, came through exactly as she had promised. It turned out that the goddess was just waiting for the moment of greatest crisis such that she could shine even brighter in the rescue spotlight. So suddenly the suitors, who had been fighting four men up there on the threshold, looked up and realized, to their confusion, that they were now fighting five men. And the reason for that, folks, is that Athena had decided to reprise one of her favorite disguises. So suddenly, right inside of the midst of the fighting, Athena had manifest herself as mentor. And then it was five men against, well, likely about 90-some suitors now, accounting for Odysseus's successful arrow shots. And the fighting decidedly turned in the direction of Odysseus 
at this point. It turned out that Mentor was an incredibly gifted fighter. But after a few moments, Mentor slash Athena actually got bored. It's not really an awful lot of fun if you're a goddess to be fighting mere mortals. I mean, really, what chance do they have? And so Athena decided to change her disguise again. So this time, the goddess of practical wisdom and disguises manifest herself in the shape of a small bird and flew up and perched herself on the rafters at the top of the Great Hall. And ladies and gentlemen, that bird, looking down from the rafters, then used her deific magic to confound the suitors' very best spear throws. And folksy suitors were lobbing those spears directly at Odysseus and company, and every spear flight, just at the last moment before it almost hit its target, seemed to somehow defy the laws of gravity, of physics, of common sense, and even, I suppose, of good storytelling. Because every spear changed directions at the very last second and missed its intended target. And ladies and gentlemen, very soon after that, it was over. Because the remaining suitors, no fools, put two and two together and recognized the obvious. They were currently being defeated, not by four men, but by a god. And there was nothing at all that any of them could do anymore to tip the balance in their favor. And so these suitors, in an act of self-defense and common sense, did the only thing left to do. They all summarily dropped their weapons, they dropped to their knees, and they surrendered. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, sword in hand, walked through his great hall, walked up to each of the remaining alive suitors, who grasped Odysseus around the waist in the classic gesture of surrender and supplication, and Odysseus refused to grant quarter. Rather, he approached each suitor, looked the man in the eye, and then beheaded him or ran him through the gut with his sword. Ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus butchered all of them in cold blood. In fact, only two men were spared in that great hall. They were innocents, they were not suitors, and they had been caught up in the fight, one of them coerced by the suitors, and the other simply trapped in the great hall. It was a young slave boy and, well, this next part makes me pretty happy, a storyteller. But as for every other man in the hall, no matter how much those men had supplicated, no matter how much those men had pleaded, had begged, and then had bribed, and finally had broken down and cried, well, it made no difference to Odysseus. He simply killed them all. And eventually, because it must have taken some time to systematically kill that number of men, well, the great hall lay covered, its floor heaped up with the bodies of 108 dead men. Homer describes the scene. All of them, so many, lying in blood and in dust, 
like fish, hauled up out of the dark gray sea in nets. They lie heaped on the sand, longing for water, until the fiery sun kills them. Just like that did these suitors lie, body heaped upon body. But eventually, ladies and gentlemen, the butchery was complete. And then Odysseus summoned to the bloody killing room floor his loyal old slave woman, Penelope's chief housemaid, the servant Eurycleia. And when she arrived in the hall, the first thing we should notice is that she wasn't horrified by the scene. Rather, she exulted in it, cheering, hooting, hollering, and absolutely delighting in all of the dead bodies lying there in the ground. Well, when Odysseus could finally calm her, he turned to Eurycleia and he asked her for some information. Tell me, Eurycleia, about the household slaves. Which ones dishonored me? And which ones are pure. And Eurycleia, only too eager to reply and to exact her personal vengeance on the slave girls who had disrespected not only her mistress Penelope, but Eurycleia too, well, Eurycleia responded with a detailed and precise answer. Here is what she said. I will tell you exactly how things stand. In this house, we have 50 female slaves who we trained to work and to tolerate their lives as slaves. Twelve of them stepped away from honor. They ignored me and they ignored Penelope, our mistress. Summon those twelve girls to the hall. Odysseus replied. And folks, some time later, those twelve girls arrived in the great hall. Homer describes the scene as follows. Sobbing desperately, the girls arrived, weeping, clutching at each other. Now, Homer does not tell us the girls' names or anything else about them. All we know is that they were slaves and girls, so likely somewhere between the ages of 14 and 18 years old. Well, when they arrived, they no doubt were confused, but also fearing for their lives. Remember that the ladies were all locked up outside of the Great Hall upstairs in the ladies' quarters, and for the last hour or so, they've been hearing the sounds of battle and the sounds of screaming and dying men from their quarters upstairs. So when those twelve girls stepped into the great hall, the first sight that confronted them was a heap of 108 mutilated corpses, including in that heap, of course, the dead bodies of twelve noblemen suitors, who twelve of the slave girls had been either voluntarily or involuntarily sleeping with. But, before the poor girls could so much as comprehend and register the shock of that particular scene, Odysseus, their master, set them to a grisly and horrifying task. Odysseus ordered the twelve girls, first of all, 
to carry all 108 dead corpses outside and to stack those corpses like firewood in the courtyard. Homer puts it this way. Odysseus instructed them and forced them to carry the bodies of the dead men outside and to pile those bodies one on top of the other. And next, once the bodies had been stacked outside, Odysseus ordered the twelve girls to begin a thorough cleaning of the great hall, with buckets, with water, with rags and sponges. Odysseus ordered the girls to mop up the blood, the gore, the piss, and inevitably the shit from voided bowels that was now pooling on the great hall's furniture and floors. And finally, once the grim housekeeping had been accomplished, Odysseus turned to his son Telemachus and spoke. Take the girls outside into the courtyard, and when you're there, hack at them with long swords, eradicate all life from them. And then they will forget all of the things that the suitors made them do through Aphrodite. So Telemachus marched the poor girls out to the courtyard. But ladies and gentlemen, young Telemachus did not obey his father's instructions. Rather, Telemachus decided on something even worse. I refuse to grant these girls a clean death by sword, Telemachus declared. They shamed me and my mother when they lay with those suitors. So, instead of decapitation, Telemachus decided on slow strangulation, as a punishment that he, at least, found more fitting to the crime. Homer tells us how it happened. As doves spread their wings to fly home to their nests, but someone sets a trap, they crash into a net, and it is a bitter bedtime for those doves. Just so the girls, their heads all in a row, were strung up with the noose around their necks, designed to make their death an agony. And then, with a heap of 108 dead suitors stacked and stinking on the ground, and twelve teenage girls kicking and gasping for air hanging above those corpses. Then there was only one remaining target for Odysseus and his son to complete their retribution and revenge. The disloyal goatherd Melanthius. And folks, you will remember that I told you some episodes earlier that our boy Odysseus has never been one to forget an insult or a slight. 
and no doubt Odysseus now remembered Melanthius's mocking insults and treasonous words when Melanthius had encountered an old beggar on the road just a few days earlier. And now it was Melanthius's turn to reap the whirlwind that was Odysseus. Homer reports what Odysseus and his son Telemachus did to Melanthius. They dragged Melanthius out through the doorway and across the courtyard. When they were there, they cut off his nose and his ears, and they ripped off his genitals to feed raw to the dogs. And then, still full of rage, they chopped off the man's hands and his feet. And then Odysseus and his son, leaving what was left of the disloyal goat herd to bleed out on the ground of the courtyard in the company of dead suitors and hanging girls, well, Odysseus and his son, their enemies now suitably vanquished, re-entered their own great hall. Now, as you can well imagine, the great hall still stunk something terrible. And so ever pragmatic and resourceful Odysseus summoned his loyal slaves. He called the loyal slaves down to the great hall, and he ordered those loyal slaves to fumigate the room with smoke, with fire, and with burning sulfur. And only once the great hall had been suitably restored to its former glory, and there were no signs left at all of any sort of struggle in that hall. Only then did Odysseus summon Eurycleia. Well, the old nursemaid arrived, and clucking with joy and giddy with happiness, Odysseus gave Eurycleia the task of heading up to the ladies' quarters on the second floor and of bringing the good news to Penelope that all 108 of the suitors were dead, and that her husband, her Odysseus, was finally returned home. And ladies and gentlemen, when Penelope received that news, well, her response was not exactly what any of us would have expected. And that, of course, is where we are going to leave this episode, episode number 13 of Odyssey the Podcast. So in episode number 14, we will bring our Odyssey together to a conclusion. Odysseus will be reunited with Penelope, and there is a lot of interesting stories to tell about that reunion. So ladies and gentlemen, on in a second to the post-story commentary. And you know what it has to be about. You know what we do have to talk about because it can't be avoided. We have to have a conversation to make some sort of sense out of the bloodbath, the butchery, and the hanging of those slave girls that we've just been party to. So specifically, I am going to, in the post-story commentary, address first the suitors, and next, the slave girls. 
I'm going to discuss how Homer wants us listeners to feel about the situation and what happened in that courtyard. And then I'm going to discuss how various Homeric scholars and storytellers like me have considered the situation for the past few thousand years. So, normally at this point in the proceedings, I invite you to get yourself a cup of coffee, a bottle of water, or something like that before we proceed together into the post-story commentary. But I can tell you, based on the story that I have just relayed, I'm heading off, personally, for a rather stiff drink. And then, it will be on to that post-story commentary. And so welcome, folks, to the post-story commentary. Now, I want to address two particular questions inside of this commentary. Question number one. Was Odysseus's massacre of those 108 suitors necessary and justifiable? And question number two. What are we listeners to make of the hanging of those 12 slave girls by Odysseus's son, Telemachus? Was their hanging necessary? and justifiable. Now, my approach in the commentary is going to be fairly straightforward. I am going to offer two different possible answers, if you will, to each of the questions. I will endeavor to do my level best to answer what I think Homer would say if he were posed with the necessary and justifiable question, and then I will offer you a contemporary or a revisionist perspective on the questions. Now, a couple of little caveats just before we dive in. This post-story commentary is not likely to adequately answer or permanently resolve either of the two questions that I have just outlined. Ladies and gentlemen, readers, listeners, scholars, and Homeric enthusiasts have been analyzing, arguing over, debating what happened inside of the Great Hall to those 108 suitors, and especially what happened out in the courtyard to those 12 girls for quite some centuries now. And I think it is worth us remembering, as we dive into this post-story commentary, we are, of course, a little bit all culturally implicated. And the questions that we choose to ask and the concerns that we have indicate as much about our own century and our own sensibilities as they do about anything inherent inside of Homer's Odyssey. Okay, all of those caveats and qualifiers out of the way? Let's first move on to the question of the massacre in the Great Hall. Was Odysseus's massacre of all 108 of those suitors necessary and justifiable? And the glibest answer to that question is yes. Because folks, on some levels, Homer's Odyssey is a simple morality play in which the practitioners of Zeus's laws of Xenia are the good guys and anybody who violates Zeus's laws of Xenia are definitionally the bad guys. And we, of course, have already seen Cyclopes violating Xenia and giant killer cannibal Lastragonians violating Xenia. So when we get to the 108 suitors, Homer has none too subtly already suggested to us that if you violate Xenia, you are indeed a monster. And inside of Homer's Odyssey, of course, all monsters must die. And so, 
If we see the Odyssey as a simple little Xenia morality play, then the question of do these suitors have to die? Is it necessary? Is it justifiable? Well, that question is answered with a resounding yes. There is no way that they can amend their Xenia-violating ways because, as a morality play, they all have to be killed for the play to come to its happy conclusion. Now, folks, that's all very true. But I also think it actually evades or dodges the central question that I'm trying to get at in this post-story commentary. So what I want to do is suggest or propose that we play a little bit of an imagination game now and remove Homer's authorial intent from our equation. And instead, look at the situation in Ithaca from the perspective of those 108 suitors. And I am going to argue myself right now that the massacre was both unnecessary and further that Odysseus, in choosing to kill those suitors, did something extremely foolhardy and short-sighted. So, let's begin with unnecessary. I am going to argue that the suitors did not need to be killed. So here's why. The very moment that the suitors realized that their rightful king, Odysseus, was, improbably after 20 long years away, alive and back home, well, the suitors immediately acted in a fashion which could only be deemed as appropriate, conciliatory, and non-confrontational. So, let's recount the scene inside of the Great Hall. The suitors believe it is an old homeless beggar who has improbably managed to string the bow, shoot it through the axe heads, and now has accidentally put an arrow through the neck of Antinous, the chief suitor. So let's pick up the story at this point. The number two suitor, now that Antinous is dead, is a man named Eurymachus. He's now the leader of the remaining 107. The moment that Odysseus rips off his disguise, declares that I am Odysseus, I am home, and you dogs, I am going to kill you all. Here is what Eurymachus says to his king. Wow, if it is you, Odysseus, well, you are right. We have committed some terrible crimes in your palace and on your lands. But the one responsible, he's dead. Antinous, it was all his idea. He did not really even want to marry your wife. His plan was to lie in ambush for your son and to kill him, and then to seize the throne and rule in Ithaca. But now, now that he has been killed, and quite rightly, please, our king, have mercy on your subjects. And for our part, Odysseus, we will give you full compensation for everything that we have eaten and drunk in your house. Further, we will also bring you the price of 20 oxen per suitor. And after that, we will also pay you all of the gold and all of the bronze that you see fit. So folks, just a reminder... Those are the very first words, on behalf of the suitors, uttered to Odysseus when they realize that Odysseus 
their rightful king has finally, after 20 years, rather improbably, returned safely back home. So let's take a moment to deconstruct the suitors' case. Here is what they actually propose to Odysseus. Number one, they acknowledge that Odysseus was within his rights to have killed Antinous. The suitors acknowledge that Antinous was engaged in regicidal plotting. The balance of the suitors, they claim, were only engaged in courting Odysseus's wife. Number two, they acknowledge quite freely and openly that they have violated the protocols of Xenia. They should have been replenishing the palace stores as they ate and drank their way through them. Number three, they immediately offer a very generous compensation package which would have restored to Odysseus's household stores everything that they had consumed. And if you take a look at the compensation package, folks, including all the gold and all the bronze that Odysseus wishes, plus 20 oxen times 107 suitors, well, it will be more than sufficient to make Odysseus whole again. Next, they offered Odysseus additional gold and bronze to compensate for any of the pain, the outrage, the suffering, or the anger that their long-absent king might now be feeling. And finally, and I think this is most critical, Eurymachus, on behalf of all 107 men standing in that hall, offered their rightful king their immediate and unqualified loyalty. Remember what they said. So please, our king, have mercy on your subjects. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is a little bit of a temptation for we listeners to get caught up inside of Homer's storytelling and want to respond to Eurymachus's speech something along the following lines. We are very tempted to say, Oh yeah, right, buddy. Offer compensation, apologies, and restitution now. But that ship has sailed, buddy. You're going to die. And of course, the reason that we're tempted as readers and listeners to do so is that we fall into the erroneous trap of assuming that those 107 suitors standing there in the hall in front of Odysseus are actually making their offer to Odysseus from a position of weakness. But... I am going to invite you now to step back and to view the situation inside of the Great Hall from the perspective of the suitors as opposed to the perspective of we readers and listeners. And folks, it is pretty obvious from the suitors' perspective that they are actually making an offer of compensation, of restitution, of peace, and of loyalty from a position of overwhelming strength. So, let's examine the situation in the Great Hall. On the one side of the Great Hall stands Odysseus. Odysseus is armed with a bow, a rather remarkable bow, and some arrows. But not, I need to point out, 108 arrows. Standing beside Odysseus, having his back, if this comes to a fight, is Odysseus's 20-year-old son, Telemachus. 
a boy with absolutely no battle experience whatsoever, and, it pains me to say it, a reputation as being a little wee bit of a wuss. And filling out that heroic company of father and son? Two slaves. Two men who quite definitionally have never done any formal military combat training in their entire life. So now, ladies and gentlemen, let's wander over to the other side of the hall and see who is standing behind Eurymachus as he makes his offer of peace, compensation, loyalty to his king. On the other side of the hall, 106 healthy young men. All men about the same age as Telemachus, and all, we can assume, at least as capable in a fight as would be Telemachus and two slaves. Now, folks, our error as we read or listen to Homer's Odyssey is that as we view the situation from our rather omniscient perspective, we are privy to inside information that those 107 suitors simply do not have. And we know, of course, as Odysseus knows, that standing beside Odysseus's tiny little army of four is one more rather significant weapon, and her name is Athena. But these suitors? They have absolutely no way at all of knowing that a deity is going to enter the fray. And so, from their perspective, the moment that Odysseus reveals that he is home, they are making a reasonable offer to their long-absent king from their position of overwhelming advantage. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you remove deific intervention from the equation, then those suitors can quite reasonably expect that if it comes to a fight, Odysseus and company will all be dead in a mere matter of minutes. All it will take is one mass charge of the suitors, and it won't matter how brilliant Odysseus is with the bow, because the bow is, quite definitionally, an absolutely useless weapon in a close-quarters fight. In a matter of seconds, Odysseus, Telemachus, and the two slaves will be overwhelmed and dead. And finally, folks, and I think it also bears noting, had the 107 noblemen suitors inside of the Great Hall that day truly been hoping for regicide and regime change? Well then, ladies and gentlemen, the very moment that Odysseus had ripped off his disguise and declared, I am Odysseus, I am home, well, the suitors simply would have killed him and killed Telemachus right then and there on the spot. Eurymachus would not even have bothered to stand up and propose a compensation plan in peace. In fact, if we examine Homer's text, it is very obvious that Eurymachus and the other suitors only raised their swords against their rightful king once Odysseus had categorically refused the suitors' offer of restitution, peace, and loyalty. Here's what Odysseus said. Eurymachus, even if, even if each of you gave me all he possesses, and all he will ever possess in the future. Not even then would I hold back from killing you all now. So, your only choice is to fight.
And it was only at that very late point, when Odysseus had closed all possible doors on a negotiated peaceful settlement, that the suitors drew their swords in self-defense. So, back to my thesis. I think I have now argued, rather successfully, that Odysseus's massacre of those 108 men was entirely unnecessary. So now, folks, I'm going to pile on and make the case that it was also extremely foolhardy, too. So, to make that case, I'd like to bring you back to the night before the massacre in the Great Hall. If you recall from our story you just completed listening to, Odysseus, the night before the massacre, was lying awake. He simply could not get to sleep, worrying about what was going to transpire the next day. And that's when Athena, the goddess of wisdom, had arrived, manifest herself at the side of her hero, and asked him what it was he was so worried about. And after Athena had offered some consolation, and assured Odysseus quite gleefully that she would assist in the butchery of all 108 men, Odysseus raised an additional problem with the goddess. Here's what he said. But goddess, there is another, even more difficult problem. Suppose, goddess, that with Zeus's help and with yours, I managed to kill them all. Tell me, I beg you, where could I go to escape their family's vengeance once the killing is over. And of course, folks, Odysseus was articulating the central problem. Killing the 108 men in the Great Hall the next day was not going to make the situation in Ithaca any better. In fact, it was only going to make the situation in Ithaca much worse. Recall, as Odysseus knew, that Ithaca was a blood vengeance, eye-for-an-eye eye culture. And if Odysseus killed 108 noblemen, the next morning, well, he would be setting in motion a cycle of multi-generational blood vengeance. And, of course, he was already in a bad enough situation. There were 600 fathers he had already lost or squandered on his journey home from Troy. So, in the morning, killing 108 of those fathers' sons wasn't going to do anything for his civic reception inside of his kingdom. But here was the problem, folks. Odysseus was more than intelligent enough and perceptive enough to recognize that killing the suitors would set up something ugly that he might not ever be able to control. But unfortunately for our boy Odysseus, he had neither the self-control or, alternately, he was so addicted to violence by this stage in his life that our boy Odysseus could not help but massacring the 108 men anyway. Now, if you'll forgive me an aside, folks, at this stage, it might have been wonderful if the goddess of wisdom had stepped in, acknowledged Odysseus's concern about setting up a cycle of blood vengeance inside of his kingdom, and counseled Odysseus into a course of reconciliation, de-escalation, and peace. But unfortunately for the good people of Ithaca, Athena, aside from being the goddess of wisdom, was also a goddess who enjoyed a really good bloodbath too. So instead of offering her boy 
some sage advice, Athena encouraged quite the opposite, and the next day Odysseus waded into his great hall, knowing he had the goddess at his back, paid no attention to the suitors' reasonable offers, and butchered them all. So, was the massacre in the great hall justifiable and necessary? In my view, emphatically no. In fact, I would go further and argue that the massacre in the Great Hall was unnecessary and extremely, extremely foolish. So now for fun, folks, let's turn the entire question upside down and on its head and ask if we can actually make a viable case for the opposite side. That Odysseus's massacre of the 108 men inside of the Great Hall was absolutely necessary and justifiable. And the interesting thing, ladies and gentlemen, is I think that we can make just such a case. In my previous defense of the 108 suitors, I placed all of the blame for the plan to kill Ithaca's heir onto the shoulders of Antinous, the chief suitor. And Homer actually leaves us with no doubt at all inside of his odyssey that Antinous was the chief and central architect of that regicidal plot. But Homer also assures us that Antinous did not act on his own. First of all, he spoke about his plotting openly in the company of the other 107 suitors, and next he actually recruited 20 of the best of those suitors to lie in ambush with him on that ship with the plans of assassinating young Telemachus. And so, when Odysseus, the returning king of Ithaca, learned of this regicidal plotting inside of his kingdom, well, Odysseus faced a genuine dilemma. He knew that there was one suitor, named Antinous, who was actively guilty of plotting regicide. He also learned that there were 20 other unnamed suitors actively complicit in implementation of that assassination plot. And finally, he learned that all 107 of the suitors were to some degree passively complicit. They had heard the details about the plot, and they had done nothing to stop it. So, from Odysseus's perspective as Ithaca's king. What did he know? He knew that a cancerous treason was festering inside of the Ithacan body politic. And if we want to extend the analogy, he, Odysseus the surgeon, had no way of knowing how far that cancerous treason had already spread. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a quick reminder. The Bronze Age of Ithaca had no formal investigative tools for determining which of the suitors was most involved. And further, Ithaca's Bronze Age had absolutely no sort of judicial system in which to offer each of those 107 suitors their own personal day in court. So, what was a man like Odysseus to do? And before we too hastily pass judgment on Odysseus's ultimate decision, it does bear remembering that in our own very recent centuries, where we do have sophisticated investigative and judicial systems, 
we still continually struggle with just such questions of culpability and punishment when a great crime has been committed. And the question that we always face is this. Do we punish only those very few who actually committed the deed? Or alternately, do we punish the very many who complicitly stood by and said or did nothing when the crime was being committed? And we have not yet adequately resolved that problem inside of our own century. So what was Odysseus, a Bronze Age warlord, to do when he was confronted with the very same issue? Well, we know what he did. The king of Ithaca, rightly alarmed at a cancerous treason spreading in his kingdom, used the only surgical technique available in the Bronze Age. The rather blunt instrument of a full and a complete amputation. And so, Odysseus butchered, without consideration, compassion, or mercy, all 107 young men now standing and suing for peace inside of his great hall. Now, were some of those men, teenage boys actually, if we're being precise, were some of those men that Odysseus butchered in the great hall guilty of no greater crime than passive complicity in a regicidal conversation? No doubt some of them were. And further, would some of those 107 young men, had Odysseus their king, granted them mercy and allowed them to live? Would those boys have grown into model and loyal Ithacan citizens? Well, no doubt, most of them would have. But for Odysseus, a Bronze Age king, with neither the investigative nor the judicial tools to separate the potentially loyal from the potentially disloyal, well, Odysseus could not afford to take any chances. And so Odysseus, our boy Odysseus, butchered them all. And there you have it, folks. Two quite different perspectives on what transpired inside of that great hall. You've heard the two sides. Now pay your money, take your chances, and decide for yourself. As for me, I'm going to pause for a moment, refill my coffee mug, and then we will move in to the second half of this post-story commentary. And so now on, folks, to the question of the hanging of those 12 slave girls. And the question, of course, is, was the hanging of the 12 slave girls necessary and justifiable? So let's begin by looking at how Odysseus and his son Telemachus would have considered the situation. Why did Odysseus give his son the order to kill those 12 girls? Now, the best way to do this is to go back to the scene in the Great Hall and pick up the story right at the very moment when the 108 noblemen suitors, who may or may not have been plotting regicide, and who most certainly had been violating Xenia and courting Odysseus's wife, are now all dead, lying on the floor of Odysseus's great hall. So, any political threat to Odysseus's kingdom, if the suitors had posed such a threat, has now been thoroughly eliminated. So the question, folks, is why then did Odysseus proceed to kill 12 
slave girls. Definitionally, first as slaves and next as women, the least powerful citizens in Bronze Age Ithaca. Though I suppose we really can't even use the word citizens if we're being technically accurate. They were property. And I think we can agree that Odysseus did not have to kill those twelve girls in order to politically secure his kingdom from any form of an uprising. So what possible reasons did he have? Well, the first possible reason might have been revenge. And we do know that some of those slave girls might have been sympathetic to, or possibly even conspiring with the suitors. And folks, we know that at least one of the girls, one of Penelope's slave girls, had been responsible for letting the suitors in on Penelope's four-year-long weaving and unweaving ruse. And the suitors might have gone for who knows how long without figuring that out if it hadn't been for one of the girls ratting Penelope out. But we also know beyond that one girl that it's implied throughout the Odyssey that Penelope did not entirely trust to the discretion of all of the girls in her company. And if we witness Penelope's conversations with that homeless beggar who she may or may not suspect is her husband Odysseus, well, Penelope always speaks in carefully coded language. So, was Penelope speaking in coded language? Because she was never alone with the homeless beggar, and the slave girls attending her might have taken whatever she said directly back to those suitors? Well, it's a possibility. It's never really explored inside of Homer's Odyssey, but there is a possibility that Odysseus decided that 12 girls had been somehow aiding and abetting the enemy, and so had to be executed now. Okay, now on to a second possible reason why the girls were killed. And this reason is punishment for disobedience to their rightful mistress. And we do know, in the opinion of Eurycleia at least, that some of those slave girls had not been showing proper respect or deference to their betters. And folks, specifically after the suitors have been massacred, recall that Odysseus calls Eurycleia, the head slave and the supervisor slave, if you will, into his great hall and demands a report on the 50 lesser female slaves that Eurycleia is responsible for. And Eurycleia reports the following to Odysseus. I quote, I will tell you exactly how things stand. In this household, we have 50 female slaves who we trained to work and to tolerate their lives as slaves. 12 stepped away from honor. Those 12 girls thumbed their noses at me and at Penelope, our mistress. So, could Odysseus have decided that due to the thumbing of the nose at their betters, that the 12 girls deserved to be hung? Possibly. But once again, folks, it's important to note that this is never articulated inside of Homer's Odyssey as a reason why Odysseus had the girls executed. So, what reason is articulated by Odysseus for killing the 12 girls? Well, ladies and gentlemen, only one. The only reason that Odysseus and his son ever provide is that the girls had lost their virginity by having had sex 
with the suitors. And, apparently, this loss of purity seems to have covered those twelve girls in so much shame and rendered them so dirty that, by extension, Odysseus' entire household was now in a state of shame and dirt, and the twelve girls needed to be killed. First, to punish them, but just as importantly, it seems, to cleanse and to purify the entire Odysseus estate. In fact, Telemachus declares that the twelve girls are so sullied that they no longer even deserve a clean death. Here's what he says after his dad orders the girls to be killed with a sword. I refuse to grant these girls a clean death, since they poured down shame on me and on mother when they lay beside the suitors. And so Telemachus, as we know, instead of quickly and relatively less painfully beheading the twelve, well, Telemachus chooses to hang the twelve girls up by their necks, in Homer's words, to deliberately make their deaths an agony. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in our own culture, this concept that the twelve girls' loss of their virginity had somehow rendered them as damaged and dirty goods, and the further concept that the girls' loss of virginity had somehow shamed the entire household, well, both of these concepts, of course, are foreign to we modern listeners and we modern readers of Homer. But I need not pause for long to remind you that we do not need to go back very far in our own history or to look very far inside of parts of our own 21st century world to witness these exact attitudes and cultural value systems still very much alive and in practice. And, to make things even worse, in Homer's world, or in parts of our own, it seems, well, it appears that Odysseus and Telemachus could not have cared one whit whether the twelve girls had lost their virginity voluntarily to the suitors, or, on the other hand, if those twelve girls had lost their virginity through rape. In fact, folks, Odysseus himself clearly states that the slave girls in question were victims of rape. Recall, immediately after Odysseus removes his disguise and reveals himself to the 108 still-alive suitors inside of the Great Hall, here is what Odysseus says. You dogs! You thought I would not come back from Troy. So, you plundered my house, you flirted with my wife, and you raped my slave girls. But, ladies and gentlemen, I do need to stop here for a moment and let you in on a rather perplexing and possibly even troubling problem with the Odyssey. Because Homer's Odyssey, or possibly the blame goes to the translators of Homer's Odyssey, I will leave it for you to decide, well, the Odyssey is somewhat inconsistent in the twelve girls 
volition in the sex that they had with those suitors. So let me explain. Initially, in Odysseus's speech to the suitors that I just read to you, all translators are in agreement. Emily Wilson's translation, which is the one I quoted, uses the word raped. Stephen Mitchell's translation also uses the word raped. And Robert Fagel's translation means the word raped, though Fagel's opts for the somewhat more genteel synonym ravished. But then, later, after the suitors have been killed, and when Odysseus provides instructions to Telemachus to take the twelve girls out to the courtyard and to kill them, well, the three translations sitting in front of me right now, well, those three translations profoundly differ on the slave girl's volition in losing their virginity. So let me read the identical passage from the three different translators in front of me. Robert Fagels's 1996 translation, Stephen Mitchell's 2013 translation, and Emily Wilson's 2017 translation. And what I'm going to read you, folks, is Odysseus's speech in which he instructs his son Telemachus to take the girls out to the courtyard and kill them. And in the speech I'm going to read to you, Odysseus explains why he believes those girls must die. So, let me begin with the Fagel's 1996 translation. I quote, Hack them with your swords! Slash out all their lives! Blot out of their minds the joys of love they relished under the suitors' bodies, rotting on the sly. And now on to Mitchell's 2013 translation of the very same passage. Unsheath your swords and run them through until they forget the delights of love that they had when they spread their legs for the suitors. And finally, on to Wilson's 2017 translation. Hack at them with long swords. Eradicate all life from them. They will forget the things the suitors made them do with them in secret through Aphrodite. Now, folks, you only need to hear those three passages once to recognize that there is a profound difference in those three translations. Specifically, inside of Mitchell and in Fagel's, and if you'll permit me an aside, inside of almost every other translation I have ever read or consulted, Odysseus states that the twelve girls were not victims of rape, but rather that they were voluntary participants who quite enjoyed the sex that they were having with the suitors. Fagel speaks of the joys that they relished, Mitchell talks about the delights of love. Fagels refers to the girls rutting on the sly, while Mitchell uses the phrase spreading their legs. But then, then we get to Wilson's translation. And inside of Wilson's translation, Wilson tells us that the girls were made to have sex with the suitors 
and there is absolutely nothing in the language that Wilson uses to suggest that the girls were having a particularly good time with the sex they were being forced to have. Now, folks, I do not have anywhere near the expertise to wade into a translator's debate, but it strikes me, reading these three passages, that some translator or group of translators have somehow inserted into the translation a bit of their own agenda or value system, and it is a rather crucial section of the story to get wrong. Now, I wish I knew the answer. I wish I could give you some direction. All I can encourage you to do is read as many translations as you can, and when the translators go to the trouble to write an essay in front of their translations, explaining why they have translated a passage in a particular fashion, we'll read those essays too. But, moving back to our initial question, regardless of which translation you choose, or which translation is actually more accurate to Homer's intent, the facts remain the same. Odysseus and his son could not have cared one whit about the girl's volition. Somehow those twelve girls had lost their virginity, and that rendered them as something dirty and a stain that needed to be washed from the Ithacan estate before moral order could be restored to Odysseus's kingdom. So now, let's move on to my own 21st century perspective on the hanging of the girls. Odysseus thought it was necessary. Telemachus thought it was justifiable. How does Jeff feel about it? But folks, just before we proceed, another tiny little aside. Because I suspect that Homer, the omniscient narrator, actually in this unique case, does not share the views of his lead character Odysseus. And I would argue that inside of the Odyssey, Homer actually wants we readers and we listeners to feel some degree of sympathy or compassion for those twelve hung girls. So here's why I think that. Ladies and gentlemen, the simile that Homer employs in describing the death of the twelve girls is a simile which, at least as I read it, does not evoke a sense of justice rightly delivered. In fact, when I read Homer's simile, I'm left with a sense of a horror being perpetrated onto innocent victims. So, let me refresh your memories and reread you Homer's description of the death of the twelve girls. I quote, As doves spread their wings to fly home to their nests, but someone sets a trap. They crash into a net. A bitter bedtime. Just so. The girls, their heads all in a row, were strung up with the noose around their necks to make their death an agony. They gasped, feet twitching for a while, but not for long. And ladies and gentlemen, the comparison of those 12 unfortunate teenage girls to doves and the reference to nests and to bitter bedtimes. Well, it is not a simile that most writers would employ 
if they wished to hammer home a sense that the girls were impure, that the girls were sluts, or that the girls were well-deserving of the death that they received. And I have to think that Homer, the master of the simile, has chosen something quite deliberate to evoke listener and reader sympathy for the situation of those poor 12 girls. Now, this might all just be a tentative hypothesis on my part, and it might be my own 21st century sympathies to the girls getting in the way of my accurate reading of Homer. I will leave it up to you to decide. But let's move on right now to my own particular take on the hanging of those 12 girls. Was it necessary? Was it justifiable? And of course, my answer is pretty obvious. My response to the hanging of the 12 girls is first dismay and next utter revulsion. And ladies and gentlemen, I have to confess that while I am trying as a good progressive 21st century white boy liberal to not sit in judgment over the values and the practices of cultures that differ from my own, on this particular issue, I'm finding it nearly impossible to not judge Odysseus and his entire Bronze Age culture, or for that matter, any culture, ancient or contemporary, that treats girls in such a fashion and not feel that that culture is somehow backward or abhorrent. I freely confess that in my defense that the hanging of the slave girls was unnecessary and unjustifiable, I am bringing to the discussion even more than my usual levels of bias. That said, here is my argument for why the girls should not have been killed. First off, the girls were very young, most of them likely between 14 and 19 years old, so by our standards, still children. Second, we have to remember that these girls were females and they were slaves. So in a sense, they were property without any rights and with no autonomy over their actions, at the very bottom of the Ithacan status heap. Third, these girls were in a dangerously exploitable position, given the total breakdown of social order inside of Odysseus's palace. Penelope could not protect them. She was barely managing to protect herself, and, well, as for Telemachus, well, any slave girl living inside of that palace for the last four years would have realized that, as far as the suitors were concerned, Telemachus was a little bit of an ineffectual joke. So, the slave girls were, given the breakdown in the Ithacan social fabric, those girls were on their own and abandoned to their own devices and decisions if they hoped to survive. And finally, while the slave girls owed their theoretical loyalty to Odysseus, who was their owner and their master, we have to remember, ladies and gentlemen, that Odysseus had been absent from Ithaca for 20 years, and that for all of these girls, well, they wouldn't have even been born before Odysseus had sailed off to the Trojan War. And so, Though the girls owed their theoretical allegiance and obedience to Odysseus, folks, for the past three years, it was the 108 wealthy noblemen suitors who had moved into that palace who were the de facto kings of the Ithacan castle. 
And it was those 108 wealthy noblemen suitors who had the daily ability to make a slave girl's life somewhat better or infinitely worse. So to illustrate this, I want to invite you folks to play a little bit of an imagination game with me. I want you to imagine that you are a 15-year-old slave girl living inside of Odysseus's palace during the years after the 108 suitors have moved in and taken over. So let's say that on some sunny, sultry afternoon, you're going about your slaving business when you were approached by a healthy, fit, young 19-year-old wealthy nobleman suitor. And he requests or demands sexual favors from you. Now, how are you, 15-year-old slave girl, going to respond? What are you going to say to that suitor if you actually wish to rebuff or to outright refuse that man's sexual advances? How about trying saying something like this? No, I absolutely refuse your shameful advances. I intend to keep myself clean until my master Odysseus, who I have never seen in my entire life, and who everybody in Ithaca thinks is dead, well, until he returns home, chases you out of the palace, sir, and then rewards me for my purity. Or possibly you might choose to say something like this instead. No, I absolutely refuse your shameful sexual advances. And further, I am putting you, sir, on notice right here and right now. If you so much as touch me or in any way attempt to force me, then I will report your behavior to Prince Telemachus, Ithaca's strong right arm, and my protector. And then you, you evil suitor, you will rue the day that you laid your dirty hands on me. And of course, folks, if you're playing our imagination game, well, we know that both of those lines are utterly ridiculous. Because any girl speaking such lines would have only provoked the rage of the suitors. Though, truth be told, the threats of the wrath of Telemachus might have provoked considerable laughter inside of the suitors too. But either way you look at it, a 15-year-old slave girl uttering such lines to any one of the 108 powerful, wealthy nobleman suitors inside of that palace doubtless would have found herself raped and likely badly beaten up too. And if you would permit me one final aside... Folks, I personally find it rather rich or shameful of Telemachus that he, the prince who manifestly failed in his duty to establish moral order in his father's kingdom and to protect those 12 girls from being raped, well, I find it shameful that Telemachus now should take such great delight in devising a death for those girls intended, in Homer's words, to make the girls' deaths a particular agony. And I cannot help but believe that a 21st century psychiatrist would have an absolute field day 
placing 20-year-old Telemachus onto the psychiatrist's couch and delving in to all of the issues, the inadequacy issues, the mummy issues, the absent dad issues, that led 20-year-old Telemachus into his particularly twisted and troubled decision to hang those 12 girls. Okay, but on to my conclusion. All of the slave girls living inside of Odysseus's palace would have been under no illusions. If they hoped to survive in the chaos that was an Odysseus absent Ithaca, well, their best hopes were to do the following. Number one, recognize where the real day-to-day power resided in the 108 suitors. And number two, curry favor with those suitors. And if that meant, in practical terms, yielding to the suitors' sexual demands and even sometimes pretending to enjoy themselves, well, that was what a reasonable girl needed to do if a reasonable girl, living in this chaos, hoped to survive. So, was Odysseus justified in ordering the twelve girls killed? Was Telemachus justified in making the girls' death in agony? Well, by our contemporary standards, an absolutely emphatic no. Those girls were victims. Victims of a king who squandered 20 long years in getting back home, and of a king's son who absolutely failed in his personal exercise of executive authority in his father's absence. And folks, perhaps the ultimate reason why those 12 girls had to be erased from Ithaca's memory? Well, because their lives and what had been done to them by the suitors would, if the girls were allowed to live, serve as a daily reminder of the profound disaster that Odysseus and his son had wrought onto their island kingdom. And with that particularly strongly stated and somewhat contentious opinion, I will wrap up this post-story commentary. Folks, I've left you with lots to consider, lots to debate, and most importantly of all, lots and lots of reasons to go back and get your hands on as many different translations of Homer's Odyssey as you possibly can. And so, in upcoming episode number 14... After the exceedingly grim content of this episode number 13, well, in episode 14, I will be moving on to telling us all a love story. Well, maybe a love story, or uh, possibly a love story, or sort of a love story. You're going to have to listen to the episode and decide for yourselves. So in the meantime... Have wonderful days. Thanks for listening. Take good care of yourselves. And we'll talk again real soon. Bye for now. 